Good morning. morning. Let's go ahead and begin with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we love you so much, and we're so thankful for your truth, for the freedom you've given us, for your character of love, for the way you run your universe, and for the freedoms we have here in this country, and and for those who have those freedoms around the world. And we ask that your spirit be poured out on our hearts and minds, let us draw close to you, and let us be more effective in taking this message to this world so that the world can be lighted and you can come soon. Be with us today as we study that we can discern what you have for us today. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. All right, we're doing lesson number seven in the quarterly Daniel, and the title is From the Lion's Den to the Angel's Den. In the first paragraph, Sabbath's lesson says, After the Medo-Persians take over Babylon, Darius the Mede recognizes the wisdom of Daniel and invites him to be part of the new government. The aging prophet so excels in his public duties that the new king appoints him a chief administrator of the whole Persian government. And I just wanted to read that because it's, it's remarkable. Just, just think about that. He is uh, one of the administrators of the Babylonian government, and they get overthrown, and the new government comes in and, and puts him in a leadership role. That's incredible. It's just remarkable. Second paragraph, and it, and it says something about da- Daniel's capacities and abilities and reputation that he had um, in the Babylonian government. However, as the chapter unfolds, Daniel faces the result of what could rightly be called the first sin, that of jealousy. Yet before the story ends, we can see that Daniel is faithful not only to his secular duties under the Medo-Persians, but most importantly to his God. And we can be sure that to a great degree, his faithfulness to God directly impacts his faithfulness in these other areas as well. And I want you to tell me what was just described there. There was a law of God described there. In action. Which law? Sowing and reaping. Okay, sowing and reaping and exertion were certainly involved. Absolutely, absolutely involved. But more, the more, more prime one was what you just said, the law of worship. By beholding, we become changed. This we're describing because of his loyalty to his God, it translated in the way he lived his life. And that's the design law. We become like the God we admire and worship. And as he became closer to God and became more honest and more principled, then he carried those character traits through in the way he conducted his business with honesty, integrity, faithfulness. This is one of the problems with the imperial version of Christianity. Imperial version. God runs the universe like Caesar runs Rome. In which people have accepted the lie that God's law works like human law and justice requires forcing people to comply and punish rule breakers. This leads to Christians who practice the enemy's methods in the name of Jesus. In the dark ages, burning people at the stake, the Salem witch trials, Galileo being imprisoned, slavery, burning crosses in people's yards, the Nazi Germany, Rwanda, And what about here in the United States? Are there those who, in the name of Christ, would be willing to take the freedoms of others today here in the United States? And some of you said yes, and I think that's correct. I think we can look around and see that. Does that mean then, because some in the name of Christ are willing to take the freedoms of others, and we see these abuses through history, does that mean that Christianity is wrong and we should oppose Christianity? Does that mean that? No, it means that the world needs to know the truth about God, and his law of love and his government of love and his design laws, i.e., the three angels' messages. That's what the world needs to know. What God's kingdom, how it really works. It's not imperial. 
Does this mean, because there are Christians who would seek to do this, that society is better off with a humanistic and godless worldview? Does it mean that? I will tell you, that is the current... Zeitgeist. (laughs) Zeitgeist, he said. That is the current idea being advanced through much of the media in our society, that the world is better off with a humanistic and godless worldview. No, what it means is that the world would be better off if they actually knew the truth about God as our creator, his laws or the laws of wonderful reality are built, his character and principles of love, truth, freedom, respecting the autonomy and independence of other people. The last paragraph states, Daniel's experience with persecution serves as a paradigm for God's people in the time of the end. The story does not imply that God's people will be spared from trials and suffering. What it does guarantee is that in the conflict with evil, good will ultimately win out, and God ultimately will vindicate his people. When you think of persecution, what comes to mind? Torture. We see some places in the world where Christians are being beheaded, stoned. When you you think of what you might face in the future... Potential persecution, do you think of 1 Corinthians 10, 13? No temptation has overtaken you except this common demand. And God is faithful and not allow you to be tempted more than you're able. But with the temptation, provide a way of escape that you might be able to bear it. Does that come to you? Think of persecution, do you immediately think of the promise that you will never be faced with something more than you can bear? Should you? Should that be kind of in your mind? Anytime the persecution comes, there's a promise that you have a way of escape. But if you believe that promise which I do, but first off, have you ever had it fulfilled in your life? I have. I've had escapes open when I was pressured. Have you? Yeah. But what about this promise for Stephen and Paul? Stephen was stoned. Paul was beheaded. What about the promise for them? Do other Bible texts come to mind, like Matthew 10, 28, Jesus speaking, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. What does that mean? Have Peter and Paul escaped the abuses of this world? Have they escaped them? Yes. They're no longer being abused. They're beyond temptation. They're beyond harassment. They're beyond persecution. They can't be harmed. They will never experience pain, suffering, torment, torture again, will they? They're beyond it. In this context, the body is not important, the soul is. In the context, body is not important, soul is, he said. People can hurt us physically, emotionally, psychologically. But other people cannot damage your soul, your character. Your soul, your character, is only damaged by your choices. To give in to the temptation, to believe the lie, to reject the truth, to harden your heart, to prefer the selfishness rather than the love. You have to choose what you identify with in your heart, in your inmost being. That ultimately leads you to surrender to Christ where you have the dwelling spirit give you the, the, a new heart and right spirit. You become a partaker of the divine nature. You identify with Christ. You assimilate and love it. Or you choose to reject that and identify with the world. That's really determines your soul. Nobody can torture your body and get you to choose evil. 
Sunday's lesson, first paragraph. Even in heaven, a perfect environment, Lucifer feels jealous of Christ. Lucifer was envious and jealous of Jesus Christ. Yet when all the angels bowed to Jesus to acknowledge his supremacy and high authority and rightful rule, he bowed with them. But his heart was filled with envy and hatred. Jealousy is such a dangerous feeling to harbor that in the Ten Commandments themselves, alongside the forbiddance of murder and theft, there is the command against covetousness. In heaven... As Satan begins his rebellion, what method, besides deceitfulness, he begins to deceive and lie, but when Satan pursued his goal of rulership, according to Isaiah, what method did he want to rule by? Isaiah? I'll just read it, Isaiah 14, 13, 14. For you said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the far sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. What method is, he, is being described here? Self-centeredness, pride, leading to what? Now, if he gets to rule with what you just read here, what kind of government will he establish? Force. Coercion. Coercion and force and self-promoting. self-promoting. Yes, all that's true. Okay. Let's, well, keep that in mind as we contrast the methods of God's rulership. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Talking about Christ, who being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God was something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of a cross. Contrast Satan's method and what he was trying to achieve. I will rule over. I will rule over. I will give completely to others. Do you see a contrast in methodology here? Satan wants imperialism. As you all said, imposal, rules, force, where the masses are subjected or subordinated to his authority. God gives of himself for the benefit and uplifting of the masses. Imperialism takes from the masses to sustain the benefits and advantages of the ruling elite. Some might call that the aristocracy. God's government has the ruler surrender and give of himself to advance and build up and ennoble the masses. Do you see the contrary methodologies here? I want you to see them very clearly. One of the founders of the SDA Church wrote in the book Desire of Ages, page 21, the following. See if you agree or disagree with this. But turning from all lesser representations, we behold God in Jesus. Looking into Jesus, we see that it is the glory of our God to give. I do nothing of myself, said Christ. The living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father. I seek not my own glory, but the glory of him that sent me. In these words is set forth the great principle, which is the law of life for the universe. How does God's government run? This is the law upon which it's built, the law of life. All things Christ received from God. God is giving of himself, pouring it out in Christ. He took from the Father in order to give to the others. So in the heavenly courts, in his ministry for all created beings, through the the beloved Son, the Father's life flows out to all. 
Through the Son it returns in praise and joyous service, a tide of love to the great source of all. And thus through Christ the circuit, another word for that is circle, circuit of beneficence is complete, representing the character of the great giver, the law of life. Beautifully described here. God the source pours out himself, emanating from him energy, life, goodness, for the benefit of all his creation. He doesn't take from us to uplift him. He gives of himself to benefit us. Satan, on the other hand, wanted to elevate himself and take to sustain his power and authority. God's method, truth, love, and freedom, which means God gives for our good. This was what was taught in historic Adventism. Let me read, and we're going to break down another paragraph here um, from the book Patriarchs and Prophets, page 42. Even when he was cast out of heaven, infinite wisdom did not destroy Satan, since only the service of love can be acceptable to God. Pause. Why? Why is only the service of love acceptable to God? Why? That's how we're built. That's how we're built. Other thoughts? The only way there can be a true heart. only way there can be a true heart. I like where you guys are going. God is love, and God does not take from us for his good. Understand that. He doesn't take from us. He doesn't tax us for his good. The service of love. God gives to us for our good. To take from us without our free giving would cause resentment in us. Incite fear in us. Destroy love in us. God wants our health, our happiness, our well-being. And will not accept activities that destroy his creatures. Thus, services done out of obligation, out of fear of punishment, out of a fear that it will be written in a book and you'll have it judged one day, and so I'm doing this so I don't get in legal trouble. It's not acceptable. It's unacceptable, not because he is some, uh, I'm legally refusing to say, it's unacceptable in the same way, it's unacceptable to a parent for a child to smoke cigarettes. It's destroying them. He doesn't accept it. It's unacceptable. He only accepts the service of love because the service of love is what helps restore us back to life. Yes? So I think that may be one of the, one of the many reasons God gave us parenthood, which you can abuse either way. But I think that he's meant for parenthood to help us understand loving somebody else so much you would give up what you want to do, the money you could have used for yourself, time you could have spent otherwise in service of this little helpless infant, you know, and then try to try to guide them through their upbringing till they become independent adults capable of, of managing their lives and so on. And it, you could abuse that privilege and treat your children as, as your little servants and stuff. But I think God meant parenthood to help us understand other-centered love better. Uh, no, no doubt about that. And you contextualize it in a world of sin. Take that same idea, contextualize it back where he created Adam and Eden without sin. 
So there is no money, no economy, no uh, you know evil characters. You got to help them. You're you're raising them in a sinless world. He still gave them be fruitful and multiply. And I think you're right. What would have happened there? They would they would have grown and they would have had greater insights and awareness of God's great love and how He gives of Himself for our welfare as they're giving of themselves for the children's welfare. So you're exactly right. Continuing on with the quote. The allegiance of his creatures must rest upon a conviction of his justice and benevolence. The inhabitants of heaven and the worlds, being unprepared to comprehend the nature or consequences of sin, could not then have seen the justice of God in the destruction of Satan. Pause. Remember, the service of love is all that's acceptable. Now the, the, the author goes on to describe that, that the inhabitants couldn't understand or were unprepared. to comprehend the nature of the consequences of sin. Could have not seen the justice in God and the destruction of Satan. What was just described? Did the writer say that God was going to use his power to destroy Satan who would have otherwise lived eternally in sin? Did the author say that? This is how, what law lens are you looking through? Human imperialistic law lens is, okay, God's just to use his power to put down rebellion and kill Satan, but he couldn't do it then because they wouldn't have understand how bad it is. He had to wait for the badness to get so bad that they hated it as much as him. Then God could kill him. God could destroy. That's how the imperial people read. It's not what's said. They didn't understand how sin destroys. And the destruction of Satan... The unanswered question in the paragraph, the angels didn't know. They didn't know. Why would he die? Where does death come from? What is death? And many Christians don't understand from where does destruction of sin come. They don't understand. They think it comes from God. Yes. I'm just making sure I understand. God is a giving God, so if he would look upon us, if we could actually see God, his love is so strong that we... Because we're in sin, we can't look upon him. It would kill us. I wouldn't have exactly described it in those words. We're describing your words. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't have done just the love. I would have mixed in the truth. God is a source of love and truth. At the Pentecost, they saw two streams of fire, love and truth. And the truth of our own unhealed condition, of the... Um, unresolved guilts of the harm that we've caused others, um, of the fears and, and shames that we haven't been fully freed of in our growth with God. Those things, when, if we were to have full comprehension and full experiential awareness of, and so if you've ever had the moments where you've had glimpses of places in your life you needed to repent of and work through, how horrible that felt, while you are working through it, until we fully are transformed and settled, then that full revelation of truth would really be painful to us and cause us to flee from his presence. Um, his love would be contrasted to our lack of love in a context of truth where we see and understand our true self, not just in historic deeds, but the way we actually are in heart. And, and, and beautiful love and truth becomes repulsive to us until we are restored to Christ's likeness. And the Bible says, when he comes, we see him face to face, or we shall be like him. And so that's what I understand to be, not just the love. I think we have to add the truth piece in. And it's really our condition being unprepared for it. 
And that's what God is working to do. And that's really, ultimately, if you understand correctly, the cleansing of the sanctuary message, that's what the message is about. Cleansing the people's hearts and minds from all those things that would cause us to be fearful and uncomfortable in his presence so that when he comes, we are at one with him and we can enter in his full presence. That's really the message. Amen. So uh, going on with the quote. Had Satan been immediately blotted out of existence, some would have served God out of fear rather than love. The influence of the deceiver would not have been fully uh, destroyed, nor would the spirit of rebellion have been utterly eradicated. Pause. If you believe this author, if you like this construct of what's being described here, according to this author, from where is God working in this to destroy sin and eradicate rebellion? From where is he trying to eradicate it and destroy it? From where? Hearts and minds of intelligent beings. Understand, God is not working to erase historical deeds out of parchments. That's what the penal legal lie is. It's really corrupt. What God had to wait for was enough truth and understanding about both his nature, character, methods, design laws, how they work, and how the evil and sin and the breaching of the laws work, how reality actually works, so that when he stops his intercessions, in other words, he stops holding at bay the full consequences of sin, he stops shielding Satan ultimately from reaping what Satan would otherwise have of wrought, which is full separation from the life giver and death, when he stops his uh, gracious intercessions and allows it to take its course and they die, that all of us realize there's nothing more God could have done. He didn't do this. If he handled it in, in immediately and just let Satan die, the idea would have been put in the minds of people, oh, you better watch out, God will kill you. What he just did, God did it. And that's what's being taught in Christianity, that God will have a judgment. And he's going to sit and look at books. And he's going to go down the deeds. And if you forgot one and didn't ask for it, as much as God loves you and love to save you, you you got one little demerit. You didn't get off the record book. And therefore, God's injustice has to kill you. And all death and punishment comes out from God, which means people really can't trust him. We have to have somebody intercede for us. And thus, we have all the theologies as Jesus, our mediator, pleading to his Father and hiding us from God. It's quite corrupt. Rather than the truth that Jesus is interceding in the hearts and minds of his people to fix the brokenness in us and restore us to unity and oneness with God. Continuing on with the quote. For the good of the entire universe through ceaseless ages. Now, after what I just said, you'll understand this. Many people have read this and have come to me in the past saying, I don't understand this sentence. It doesn't make sense to me. For the good of the entire universe. Notice what this author describes as good for the entire universe. For the good of the entire universe through ceaseless ages... Satan must more fully develop his principles that his charges against the divine government might be seen in their true light by all created beings and that the justice and mercy of God and the immutability of his law might be forever placed beyond all question. Satan had to be given time. Why didn't God just use his power to knock him down and take him out? Why does he allow the evil dude to sow such harm and such, such evil and hurt so many beings and so many people? Why? If he's a good God, doesn't he stop it? Do you understand why? Because it's not about stopping behaviors. It's stopping the spread of lies about God that would undermine trust in God. Stopping the corruption of ideas that cause people to think God is imperialistic. And so if God were to use power to put Satan down, it would only confirm the lie and people would think God's imperialistic and we can't trust him. 
And this is the wine of Babylon. And this is what Christianity has, has drunk. And this whole world is intoxicated on it. And every system of the world in some way presents it. And the three angels' message is calling for a people to stop presenting this distortion and start worshiping him who made the heavens, the earth, and the sea. I've got a couple of the quotes I'm going to skip, but it's about the law, the service of love is all that is acceptable to God. Do you understand why? Is that how you were raised in church? No, me either. So God governs upon truth, love, and freedom, gives to us, doesn't take from us, but accepts the service of love because when we give in love, understand this, when we give in love, we are not actually providing something to God that God needs. You understand that? God does not need from us something. He is not personally advanced, improved, benefited, elevated, exalted in some objective way by our giving to him. Our giving in love does not advance or improve or provide for God something that he needs. But we, we are exercising our God-given capacities to love when we give in love, and thus we grow in love and develop our godly attributes as we exercise those abilities, thus solidifying ourselves in godly love as we participate purposely in his methods. God accepts that which is good for his creation, and that is always going to be in harmony with him, his design laws and principles. Do you see the beauty of that? Yes. I can't even love without him abiding in my heart, especially to the people that have harmed me. That's exactly right. So it says in Romans 5, 5, he pours his love into our hearts. But we have to receive the love and then choose to act on that love. So we aren't the generators of the love. Just like he is the source of our life, he's also the source of the love that we experience and we give out. But as we exercise that ability, just as we receive life from God, and we exercise our life in going to the gym and working our muscles and so forth, they grow stronger it's because we're exercising. But we, you go, oh, but I don't have any life on my own. I get that from God. That's true, but we still exercise it. And exercising it, we grow stronger. We get the love from God. But as we not just simply wallow in our personal value of being loved, but we then begin to act on and exercise love in how we treat others, we grow and advance in love. This is called partaking of the divine nature. Partaking of the divine nature, yes. Do you see now the beauty of what God has designed? But Satan's government works on power over with ruling elite, exploiting and dominating the masses. Through all human history, the governments of this world, remember Jesus said, my kingdom is of the Middle East. My, my kingdom is of Jerusalem. Do you know how many Christians believe today God's kingdom is going to be found in Jerusalem? I'm, I'm not talking the new Jerusalem in heaven. No, God's kingdom, he, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. All the kingdoms of the world operate on the method that we, we saw Satan wanted to use in Isaiah. A ruling elite, exploiting and taking from the masses. Whether you go back to the pharaohs of Egypt, the emperors of China and Japan, the, the Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, the nation-states of Europe... Uh, the, the popes, all of them operate on this system of a of ruling elite that takes from and taxes the masses to sustain them. 
And then there was a government that arose with lamb-like horns that was purposely constructed to give power to the masses and obstruct a ruling elite from taking control. The United States Constitution. Written exactly the opposite, where the people held the power. And ever since its institution, it has been under attack. The Constitution, not the nation, the Constitution, the principles of the Constitution, by the ruling elites in this world, and ultimately Satan behind them. And for the enlightened Christian who understands that Revelation talks about one time, at the end of time there will be a, a ruling elite, one world government that will exploit and dominate the masses again, that the single most important legal obstruction to that is the U.S. Constitution. It is the single most in peace in, worldwide. And it's also why this particular nation will be the nation that leads the world in forming the beastly system. Why? Because as the methods of God have been established in the liberties, freedom of press, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, um, if, for, and power to the people... Those godly principles, when you understand godly principles and you practice them, you always get stronger. You always get healthier. And as a nation practices those principles, that nation gets stronger. And the U.S. nation, at, to the degree they practice those principles, above all the other nations, has become the dominant nation in the world. And thus it has the power and strength for when the Constitution is finally invalidated or pushed aside, it has the power and strength then to lead the world into this system. But the Constitution stands in the way. And the Constitution is under attack in America right today. The right to bear arms, under attack. You understand the right to bear arms, written into the Constitution, was not designed to protect you from the murderer and the thief in the community. Its primary purpose in the Constitution was to protect the masses from an authoritarian government, the ruling elite. That was its primary purpose. And for those without discernment, they read about the mass shootings and the murders of people against people, and they think that the society would be better off by taking away the, the citizenry's weapons, at weapons. In reality, it's a step toward invalidating the freedoms and the power that the people hold in establishing a ruling authority, a ruling elite. What about the freedom of speech? Is the freedom of speech under attack in this, in this country? How, You'll have to get rid of the Second Amendment to get rid of the first one. And how about freedom of religion? Is it under attack? How about freedom of the press? Is it under attack? From within. Uh, it's under attack from multiple different directions. But the point is, you will see a process happening in America, and, and I would encourage Christians to stop looking left and right. Amen. Amen. Stop looking left and right. Satan's playing you. He's pitting left against right. And, and there's a purpose for it. The devil's methods are the methods of lies, fear, and selfishness. What I see happening in the world is that fear is being incited on both left and right. Right is doing things that are inciting fear and left. Left is doing things that are inciting fear and right. Both sides are becoming more fearful. And what does fear drive people to do? Act in love or protect self? And as we protect self, what do we need to do to those who are the threat? 
Bring them to heat. Eliminate them in some way. Control them. In other words, take away liberties. Take away freedoms from those who we see not doing it our way. Whether it's left uh, taking from the right or right from the left. And so you'll see that both sides now are presenting the other side as an existential threat. Existential. Threat to your existence. They both are arguing from the left and right. Both of them are arguing right now that the liberties of the Constitution, the Constitution under attack. If you've been watching anything on the impeachment stuff, all the impeachment managers from the left are arguing that Trump is threatening our Constitution. And all the people on the right that are defending him are saying, and the left's attack is a threat on the Constitution. Both are arguing that the other is threatening the Constitution. If it's not the Constitution, it's our freedoms. If it's not our freedoms, it's our actual uh, uh, um, integrity as a nation. If it's not our integrity as a nation, well, it's the whole world because of climate change. And, and if we don't make these things, then we, when the, the whole world's going to... And, and, and thus they're inciting this fear. We must survive, survive, survive. And how are we going to do it? When you get fearful and need to survive, well, we have to kill those on the other side or control them. And so we're moving from both sides. Urgency, urgency, urgency. Get power, get power, get power. We've got to get the reins of power. Well said. Both sides are driven by the principles of fear and selfishness and the imperial law system. And sadly, most Christians accept the idea that God's law works like human law and therefore it's right to pass laws to force your way. I submit that there is some rationale for that, simply because of that text in the New Testament that says God established human governments for the purpose of... Okay, pause. No, no, start over. There's some rationale in that. In what? There's rationale in us seeking to control and kill the other side? No, it's... So, so in what? Let's go back to the, the idea that our Constitution supports the fusion of powers, separation of powers. Okay. All right? So I'm just saying that people have voluntarily given up their quote-unquote rights to governments which they believe have the power to control those okay. who wish them wrong. All right, so now, so that's why I had to clarify. Okay, because it almost sounded like you were defending this idea of fear, fear, and let's destroy the other side. No, what he's articulating is this idea out of Romans where um, it is healthy to surrender some liberties to the organized government as long as what's surrendered enhances your capacity to develop and grow and does not restrict your autonomy and ability to grow. For instance, traffic laws. We surrender the absolute freedom to drive our car anywhere, any way, and at any speed we want. We surrender that absolute freedom to... Pardon? We, we do. We surrender the absolute freedom to drive anywhere, any way, and any speed we want to the laws and the authorities that enforce those laws. And by surrendering that absolute freedom to that structured government, it allows us to avoid injury, which enhances our personal development and health. That type of law, and the same thing with food inspections and water safety inspections and, and all the other types of structure, that type of personal surrender, so we can't sell food prepared in any old way that has to meet certain health standards, okay? medications, and many other things that we do in society, these types of laws are appropriate because they enhance individual liberty, autonomy, and personal development. So that's the principle that God was suggesting in Romans. So thank you for that. If you've read my blogs over the last couple of weeks, you see how some of the responses that have been given on the Facebook page um, have been um, evidence that there's a lot of fear out there. 
There's a lot of fear out there, a lot of hurt, and a lot of animus, anger. Fear that they'll lose their ability and their freedoms. And this often leads to loss of reasoned and evidence-based discourse and just shouting the other side down. Silence the voices we don't want to hear. Run away and flee. I've had a few people on our Facebook page that articulated that they'd been longtime followers of this ministry and had been blessed so many ways that they're, they're, they, they said in the, in the, in the, in the posting how, how our ministries helped them grow in their love with God. And, and, but this one, this one posting, they, they have to leave our ministry and never visit again. <laughs> one block. Thousands and thousands of things on our site that have blessed them. One idea they don't agree with. And they must run away. Several people posted that. Run away. Why? Why do we have to run away from ideas that make us uncomfortable? It sounds very much like Peter at Pentecost when he's presenting ideas that the leadership didn't like. And what did they want to do? Use methods to silence him. You know, the truth can afford to be fair, folks. We can, we can listen to ideas that disagree with ours, evaluate them in light of evidence and truth, Amen. And, and, and just have a, a loving discourse. We can love people who have different views on various topics in society. It's okay. We don't have to be threatened by that. I don't have to be mad at a person who actually believes that smoking cigarettes help, uh, helps them uh, breathe better. <laughs> and then you substitute that with anything you think in society is a policy violation you don't have to hate people who have a, a different view of things because it becomes self-evident over time. Violations of God's designs are always injurious. Moving towards God's principles are always restorative and healing. Don't you think too many people have bought into the idea that life is a zero-sum game where if I, don't, if I don't grasp power, then you're going to abuse me? If I have power, I won't abuse you. I'll just do what's right for you. And you notice the methods being employed and the mindset and the understanding of how reality works and the lack of understanding of how love, truth, and freedom works and the lack of trust in a, in a sovereign God to oversee and overrule the abuses of, of people. Look at how we're talking about Daniel. Look at how Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had their freedoms and liberties abused. And look how God overruled. Look how Joseph had his liberties. Look how God overruled. Because they trusted him. It's interesting how extremely polarizing the last election is and how society has become more, much more polarized since the last election cycle. It's, you know, don't believe as they did that you'll get ostracized as you were going to over just who you, who you liked and didn't. I will tell you that I have had... Uh, let's move away from the society for a moment and just tell you that I deal with lots of families relationships in which one uh, in which in the family dynamic an individual has been crossing boundaries um, they have established be, through uh, multiple different mechanisms t temper tantrums when they don't get their way that people in the home begin to give in to them let's give a child example you tell your child not to have a piece of candy and they have a temper tantrum if you don't let me ask me candy but hold my breath <laughs> And so he said, oh, don't, no, no, don't hold your breath. Please don't make a scene here. Have two pieces. And the child smiles and calms down. And then this goes on for years. Whenever they don't get their way, they have a ten And you give in to what they want. 
Okay, the child now who the child is actually acting very maturely, and the action of the adult. Now you can replace this child example with married couple. Okay. Where one, instead of, I'm going to hold my breath, I'm going to rage, I'm going to slam doors, I'm going to attack you verbally, call you names, and the other person, instead of confronting this unhealthy behavior and say, this isn't an act of love, and I, I find that because I love you, um, I can't go along with this, an act of love, I must confront you with truth in a gracious way and say, you know, you've got an anger problem and your heart is, is, is not being benefited by, by treating me in this way. And, and if this goes on, I can't in love stay here because it destroys you as well as mistreats me. Okay, this is a loving, instead they go along because they want peace, they want to be a peacemaker. And they become that codependent person. And then when they come to see me and I teach them the principles of God, and they begin to establish a healthy boundary for years of tolerating it and allowing the mistreatment to go on. When they finally stand up and say, no, I cannot go along with this verbal abuse anymore. Do you think it gets better or does it get worse? Worse. The person who's in the wrong gets enraged. The person who's in the wrong blows up. The person in the wrong who has their hand in the cookie jar goes into a tirade. And then when you look in society, when these same processes are happening, you can tell who's in the wrong when they get called on it. They don't have a reason discourse. They go into a rage. They go into a riot. They begin shouting down. They don't want to hear opposition voices. And so you can look diagnostically and see which side is really in the wrong on this thing that's happening in our division right now. See, the persons that are, that are um, calling these boundaries and saying, wait a second, you, you've been pushing things that are not yours to push. Yeah. And the other side gets really mad because they've been doing it for so long, they feel like it's theirs, feel like it's their right to do it. And this is always a balance in society. Where, do you, where does love draw the line? in personal responsibility while respecting the liberty of a person who wants to do and live things differently. It's always been a, always been a struggle. What about within the church? And within the church. The Christian who has Christ in their heart, though, does not live in fear. We're not threatened if somebody calls us and, and says, hey, I think you're stupid and wrong because you believe in Jesus Christ. Well, you know, that's okay. You're free to think that. I don't get threatened by that at all. I don't have to act in rage in that. You can see this on religions. It went back in, the, I think it was the 70s, some artists took a cross, I think it was, and put it in urine. Not just a cross, crucifix, but Jesus on it. And how did the Christian community respond? With verbal criticisms and verbal statements of this is offensive and this is wrong and this is sacrilegious. There was no violence. There was no threats. There was no attacks of this person. Because Christians can be at peace knowing in their heart they love Christ and they can actually feel sad for this person who is rejecting Christ. Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Try to do that with the Koran and see what happens. Seriously. And it's diagnostic of the other side. And I would say, politically, folks, I don't care whether you're left or right, if somebody challenges your ideas and you are so emotionally offended or hurt and angry that you need to respond with methods of coercion, intimidation, violence, shouting down, criticism, it's diagnostic of something in your heart. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings forth good out of the good stored up in him, and the evil man brings forth evil out of the evil stored up in him. I don't care what side you're on. And our goal as Christians is, regardless of a particular view on a particular policy, can you present it in love? And leave people free. That's the, that's the process. So understanding God's design laws, you, you 
When we live in harmony with his design, we can't avoid the benefits. We grow healthier. We advance in wisdom. We get greater discernment. But when we violate God's design laws, it says in Romans 1, the mind becomes darkened, depraved, and futile. And we become these violent people. Read what he writes to Timothy about the last days and what the people are going to look like and all the different types of abuses and violence and, and disrespect to authorities and parents and things that go on. You can't avoid. That's where you'll end up if you reject truth and God's principles. Monday's lesson, boy, we're only getting to money. I have so many good things to go through today. <laughs> this is the, uh, the uh, I'm not going to read the, the text in Daniel, but it's basically the, the other administrators coming and asking Darius to pass the law that for so many days nobody can pray to him, and if not, they get thrown in the, in the lion's den. Um, why do you think Darius went along with it? He played to his ego. Played to his ego. Yeah. Was the motivation of those who sought, what was the motivation of those who sought to get this law passed? Get rid of Daniel. Yep, yep. Um, this is what happens with selfishness rules in the hearts of people. And I will tell you, we have this problem in the world today in government. Same problem in government today, as you see described here. Just there's no lion's dens per se. But I just saw a movie recently entitled The Last Full Measure. Anybody seen it yet? True story of Airman William Pitsenbarger, who was in the Air Force medic during Vietnam War. His job was to be on helicopters, receive people that were being pulled up and uh, provide aid and so forth and fly them back to the uh, surgeons and so forth. But at a particular battle, the army, that uh, platoon that he was uh, interacting with and pulling people up, their medic got killed and they had no medic on the ground. So he lowered himself out of the helicopter, left his helicopter and began um, and he saved a whole bunch of people that would have died had he not been there to save them but he got killed in the process and he was put in for a congressional medal of honor which was downgraded to the air, air, air force cross and for the next 30 years the people that he saved went on a you know, I don't want to say crusade, but went on the process of trying to get this upregulated and in the movie, if you watch the movie they do a brilliant job of demonstrating in the halls of Congress the politics and the self-centered advancement that has no care for anybody but their own careers going on and how this was obstructed and blocked and evaded and belittled and put aside. They had no concern for this airman and what he and his heroes and what he actually did. They only cared about their own personal advancements. And when it finally, finally, and it finally got approved, 99, it got approved, 1999. But when it finally got approved, it was because the research had been done and the person, the, the staffer who had done the research went public with the information and that threatened the careers of the politicians who were blocking it. And so those very politicians who had been blocking it for all these years took credit for it and had photo ops for giving it. Okay? This kind of stuff you see in Daniel is still going on today. Second paragraph in Tuesday's lesson, it says, Of course, the real causes and motives behind the plot, the plot to get Daniel taken out, is the cosmic battle between God and the forces of evil. At, at this time, Daniel already received a vision according to Dan, recorded in Daniel 7, so he can understand the royal decree as a matter of not mere human politics, but a cosmic war going on. This is what they're suggesting here. Do you still believe what, what Daniel said in Daniel 2.21, that God sets up kings and deposes them? Do you believe that? Or is it, does that, would that include uh, uh, elected officers or just kings? 
Would it include presidents? Well, this is out of the book, Great Controversy. Uh, see if you agree or disagree with this description. But so long as Jesus remains man's intercessor in the sanctuary above, the restraining influence of the Holy Spirit is felt by rulers and people. It still controls to some extent the laws of the land. Were it not for these laws, the condition of the world would be much worse than it is now. Think about those liberties in the Constitution. While many of our rulers are active agents of Satan, God also has his agents among the leading men of the nation. The enemy moves upon his servants to propose measures that would greatly impede the work of God. But statesmen who fear the Lord are influenced by holy angels to oppose such propositions with unanswerable arguments. Thus, the few men will hold in check the powerful current of evil. The opposition of the enemies of truth will be restrained that the third angel's message may do its work. When the final warning shall be given... And what's the final warning? If you read her writings other places, the last message of mercy, the light in the world about God, is the truth about God's character of love. It's the message we're giving here. This is the final warning. When the final warning shall be given, it will arrest the attention of these leading men through whom the Lord is now working, and some of them will accept it and will stand with the people of God through the time of trouble. What did you hear in this paragraph? Did you hear God has agents? Did you hear that his agents are necessarily godly? It said, actually, uh, that some of these he's working through will hear the message and then accept it. Meaning, for me, they hadn't accepted it yet. But they're still his agents. This is an idea that some people really struggle with. I think of Nebuchadnezzar, and Jeremiah describes Nebuchadnezzar as God's servant. I will call my servant Nebuchadnezzar. And when Jeremiah wrote and Nebuchadnezzar was called, Nebuchadnezzar was pagan, arrogant, so self-centered, he had to have seven years of insanity. He was an unconverted person, abuser, womanizer. Wasn't he? Yet, he was still reachable by God. And he ultimately gave his heart to the Lord. That works with you where you are. I think it's dangerous for us to try to judge hearts of people that especially people we don't personally know, but we shouldn't even judge them. But, but it, it, these public figures, that's a public persona. You don't know their hearts. And the devil wants to tempt us into becoming judgmental. Judge not that you be not judged. For the same measure you judge others, they'll be judged against you. So your judgmentalism towards others is actually revealing your judgmental attitude of your own heart. It's diagnostic again. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Yet by their fruits you will know them. By their fruits you shall know them. And so again, what fruits are you looking at? Is it the fruit of a verbal insult or the fruit of an action that protects liberties? Are they? The fruit is the result of what you're doing. So if a parent yells at a child and screams at them and threatens to beat their bottom because they're running toward the street, does the neighbor who doesn't see the circumstance and just hears the threat go, that parent, the verbal abuser, that's their fruit, I see it. Or must we understand the context of what's happening and why it's being done, or should we just look at the verbal outburst and make a judgment? Okay? And this is the problem with many. They don't know the heart. If you don't know the heart, you really can't make a judgment. Yes. So maybe talk about the difference between judgment and discernment. 
Because I think we, we, we have to discern, but where is the line drawn between discernment and making judgment on other people that is, uh, you know, for which we would... So we, my view is we don't judge hearts at all. It's not our place to judge hearts. We make judgments about the quality of a person's ability to carry out a task. You make a judgment on who you're going to have prepare your car. You make a judgment on who you're going to trust as the maid to come into your house. You make a judgment on who, you make judgments on who's, what surgeon you're going to allow to do surgery on you. Okay? We make judgments about abilities, but we're not making judgments about their hearts and where their hearts are. That's not our place to judge, but we are to judge abilities to fulfill tasks or duties. That's the difference in my view. Yes. Well, and wouldn't discernment have to do with uh, self and, and what you choose to do based on what you see? Yes, so discerning, actually right, discerning. And then we can sometimes discern the trustworthiness of people, and that's the discernment we can pick up on when we actually interact with people. It's very hard to discern someone's trustworthiness when it's all coming through social media or other types of media. People have public personas that are quite different. Than, think of Bill Cosby up until just a few years ago. Okay, Bill Cosby's public persona, everybody thought he was the loving neighbor that you would just, isn't it true? Yeah. Okay, it took a, it was exposed eventually that there's something else going on there. But that was a prime, and so his heart was not open, and he had a public persona. Public personas are hard to to really discern the true uh, person you're dealing with on both sides. So, back to the story of Daniel, though. What other lessons can we learn from this story? Well, Daniel, remember, historically accurate, but Old Testament can also be object lessons to teach us something larger, the great controversy. So I'll give you some, maybe some possible applications. Daniel was a foreigner in a godless nation. So Daniel represents object lesson, the believers in Christ. He was a foreigner in a godless nation. We're foreigners in a godless world. He was in Babylon and Persia, but he was not of Babylon and Persia. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. He kept his eyes fixed on God. We are to keep our eyes fixed on Christ. He practiced God's principles and remained loyal to God's kingdom. We are to practice God's principles and remain loyal to God's kingdom. Um, He came under attack from the enemies of God. We, if we're actually being faithful to God, will come under attack from the enemies of God. He turned to God in prayer, trusted God with the outcome, and God closed the lion's mouth. We live at a time when the Bible says Satan is like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But for those who, like Daniel, turn to God and trust him with the outcome, God closes the lion's mouth and we will be eternally delivered. Daniel's witness converts the king. Our witness will convert others, even some of the leading statesmen that we read earlier. Daniel was rescued, and the plotters of evil die by the lions. We will be rescued from sin, and the wicked will die by the power of sin, along with the instigator of sin, the roaring lion. Cool, isn't it? These object lessons are there for us to learn. So I've got to jump now because there's so many other cool things in the lessons. We've got to jump ahead. Let's see, I think we're going to go into Thursday's lesson. We're running out of time. Because Thursday's lesson talks about the question of punishment. Yes, Daniel was miraculously saved. His faithfulness is rewarded. Evil is pu- uh, evil punished and God's honor and power vindicated. 
But what we see here is a mini example of what will happen to the universal scale. God's people delivered, evil punished, and the Lord vindicated before the cosmos. We're in the story of Daniel now, since it was the story of Daniel. Were the evildoers punished? Yes. By who? Who punished them? Darius. Darius. They weren't punished by themselves. Darius inflicted punishment on them. Why? Why did he do it? Because they deceived him and they betrayed their trust to him. They betrayed him. And they tricked him. And they were not on his side. So he, he inflicted punishment on them. That's right. Is this how evildoers... Will uh, at the end of time are punished. Is this really an object lesson for that? That we betrayed God, and God will use his power to inflict punishment. Is that how it works in the end? What is the punishment for sin? The punishment for sin. Eternal death, right? Separation got eternal death, that's right. And from where does the punishment of eternal death come? Is the devil right when he says, look, there isn't anything wrong with sin, guys. Sin actually doesn't harm you. There's just something wrong with God who will use his power to kill you for it. And if we could just get God some anger management classes where he'll restrain the use of his power to torture and kill us, we can live eternally in sin because sin doesn't harm. God harms you for it. That's penal substitution theology, guys. That's what is taught in the imperial lie, that God, in order to be just, must use his power to torture and kill. It's a fraud. It's a lie. Understanding God is the source of life, sin severs us. And when God fully lets us reap what we've chosen, a life separate from him, there is no life there. We die. That's how it works. Sin harms. And that's why it says, sin when full grown brings forth death, James 1.15. Or Galatians 6.8, the one who sows to the carnal nature, from that nature reaps destruction. Got a couple of interesting quotes from Ellen White we don't have time to read. When it talks about uh, we're not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for a sin, the sinner brings the punishment upon himself so forth and so on. And the sure result is ruin and death, just describing the same consequence. We separate ourselves from the, from the source of life. God destroys no one. Sin, the sinner destroys himself by his own impenitence. Five testimony, 120, and so forth. So, what about, though, the suffering? This is what I want to close on. The suffering that we experience from sin in this life, like sickness from addictions, or broken relationships from betrayal, or fear and guilt from exploitation, um, are these punishments for sin? Or, yes, thank you. Or are these the painful consequences of sin? Are these painful consequences of sin? Hear me now. Mercies and evidences of grace to alert us that something is wrong before we die, before we permanently harden the heart, so that we have opportunity to reflect, reevaluate, reconsider, and turn our lives in the direction of life. So the suffering that comes from sin on this earth, folks, is often told by others that's God punishing for sin. It is not. It is grace and mercy seeking to alert people that they're on a course of devastation and destruction and they're given the opportunity to turn their life around. It's an act of grace. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the beauty of your character, for the way you run your universe, for the design laws you've created all reality to operate upon. 
we now pray for the outpouring of the Spirit, that the three angels' messages, the truth about you might go to the world, that people can see you as creator and worship you who built the, the entire cosmos and reject this imperial lie that is so deeply rooted that people actually think it's righteous to use power to punish and kill people who don't think and, and believe the way that, that we do. Lord, this world's in a dire strait, but opportunity exists and the freedoms are still open and we just pray that you will enable us to take advantage of this, that hearts and minds can be united in love and that we can see you coming soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.